0: As always, church, it's good to be with you. If you're visiting, my name is Tyler. I'm one of the preaching pastors and elders here at the Austin so I'm glad you're here. I want to wish a special happy Mother's Day to our mothers in here. We are so thankful for you. We love you, um, and we're behind you, and you're a blessing to uh, this church and you're a blessing to your family. And also, I want to say um, to those of you in this room where maybe Mother's Day is a, actually not a very happy occasion, it reminds you of loss, it reminds you of longing, and I just tell you, we love you, and God's with the brokenhearted. He's near to those who are mourning, and so if to, whether today is a joyous day where you're reminded of God's blessing, or today is a day where you're reminded of longing and loss in your life, for both of us, God is with you, he's near you, and he loves you, regardless of where you are. So we'll say Happy Mother's Day to you guys. If you have a Bible, open up to the book of Exodus, to the book of Exodus, Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20, that's where we're gonna be, and then we'll be in Matthew 6 later on, but Exodus 20 for now. Now, we're continuing on in the book of Exodus. We're actually in the middle, if you're new, we're in the middle of our series covering the 10 Commandments. And the 10 Commandments, I'm not sure what your, your, your thought of them is, but really what they are is they're the culmination of all that God has done to rescue Israel because he rescued Israel to set them free so that they could worship him, and now God has given them, he's set them free, he's carried them to this place, and now he's given them his 10 Commandments so they can know what a life of freedom and a life of worship of him looks like. That's so what the 10 Commandments are all about. They're about worshiping God for the one, who, the one who saved Israel out of Egypt. So the last two weeks we covered the first two commands of you shall have no other gods before me, you shall not make an image, a graven image of God. The way we summed up these two first commands is this, you are not to worship false gods, but worship the one true God, that's the first command. The second command was you are not to worship the one true God in false ways. Now today we get to the third commandment, Exodus 20, verse one through two, let's read it together. Exodus 21 through two, then we'll skip down to verse seven. And God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt Out of the house of slavery. Verse 7, the third command. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. So the third command is this. It's about worshiping God thoughtfully and carefully. It's about worshiping God thoughtfully and carefully. This command is not simply about the language that you use, though it includes that, but it's so much more than the language that you use. It's really about the seriousness with which you treat the person of God. See, when the text talks about God's name, it's much more than what you call God. When when he talks about his name, it's much more than a series of letters that form a sound that we give to you as a title of a particular person. No, in the Bible, especially what you find is that names have a lot of meaning and names will provide explanation of a particular person. Let me give you an example. You see this in the story of Isaac in the book of Genesis. So God came to Abraham and Sarah, he said, hey, you're gonna have a son. Sarah heard it. She laughed because she was 90, okay? So she laughs, she's 90 years old, not gonna happen. But then what happens? Over a year later, she has a son and she's holding her son in her arms and she laughs again but not in disbelief this time, but in that laughter of joy that God actually fulfilled his promise to me. And so they named their son Isaac, which in Hebrew means he laughs. So the name Isaac tells you something about him as a person. It tells you something about his story. He tells you his name. go, why is that your name? He has a story behind it. The same is true for God's name. When Moses asked God, okay, God, I'm going to Israel. Who should I say who sent me? What should I say? What's your name? And God tells him, my name is I am, Exodus three fourteen. 14. God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. And God gave him the, himself the name of I am to communicate something, to communicate something to us. His name is full of meaning. His name tells us I am that he can only be described by himself. See, all of us, if you're gonna describe yourself, you describe yourself relative to other things. I'm the child of so-and-so. I'm the employee of this company. I'm the citizen of this country. You, you and I have to look to things larger than us, things that pre-exist us to find meaning and purpose and identity and life. We are utterly dependent upon other things to understand ourselves, not so with God. God says, I am. He says, let me describe myself by looking at myself because he derives life, and meaning and purpose and reality from himself, from himself. He's the only one who can say his name is I am because there's none before him, none after him, none above him. So when God says, my name is I am who I am, he's not being vague, he's not being mysterious. He's actually being really precise and saying, there is no one like me. I bring all definition to myself. I'm God, I'm totally self-sufficient, I'm not dependent upon anyone. So his name is not just a series of letters for us to know, it's communicating something about him. Now, for us, that's difficult to understand because that's not typically how you and I use names in our context and our culture. Now, sometimes we will give names that are full of meaning and tell us something about the story of a particular child of ours, or you have a name that tells your story in a really unique way, which is really great. But most of the time, the way we think about names in our context is, at best, they're aspirational. They're aspirational. You give your son or daughter a name of someone you respect in the hopes that they would emulate that person, but it may or may not describe them accurately, right? You may give them a name that says, I want you to be like this great man or woman one day, but they may or may not actually become that person. And that's at best in our culture. Most of the time, our names don't mean much. They don't mean much. So my name's Tyler. And my name means tile maker. That's what Tyler means. Now, I can't imagine that providing a whole lot of meaning about who I am to you. I can't imagine you going, tile maker, I knew it. I just knew he was. I could tell he's a tile maker kind of guy. My name isn't aspirational. I don't aspire to be a tile maker. If you are a tile maker, fantastic. I don't aspire to be that. It doesn't tell anything about my story. My name in and of itself does not mean much. And I am assume many of your names are the same way. You know, the, the, what they mean on the surface doesn't give much meaning to your life. Now, our names in our culture may not bring meaning to you, but our names still carry meaning. They may not bring meaning on the surface of what the, what the name actually means, but your name carries meaning. Our names encapsulate all that we are as people. Our names encapsulate all that we are as people. When you think about someone's name who you know really well, something happens. Some, like someone you know really well, when you think about their name, something happens. All of a sudden, what happens? Memories, thoughts of them, their attributes, their personality, stories you've shared together, feelings you have towards them. All of a sudden, at the sound of their name, It opens up this file, so to speak, and everything about that person kind of is at your access now that you know about them, that you care about them. When you hear someone's name, it represents all that they are to you. When I hear my wife's name, Lauren, I don't just hear the the sound that makes the word Lauren. I hear it and I think of our memories together. I hear it and I think of her attributes and our hopes and our dreams together. That's what I think about. Now, you think about Lauren, it thinks about something totally different. Why? Because that name encapsulates a different person for you. Because our names represent all of who we are to somebody else. The same is true of God's name. The same is true of God's name. His name is synonymous with his character. It's synonymous with his attributes, his presence, his words. You can't separate the two. His name represents all that he is. So he tells his people, if you're going to use my name Never do so in vain. Never use my name in vain. If my name is on your lips and you're representing my name in your life, do not do so thoughtlessly and carelessly and flippantly. See, here's what vain means. Vain means empty. Vain means empty. It means inconsequential. It means that it's nothing. And vain simply means to use God's name carelessly, to not take any stock. To not take any stock of the one you're talking about and how important he really is, to treat his name like any other name is to say God is like any other person. That's what it means to take God's name in vain. Now, if you've grown up in church at all, you've definitely heard this commandment and people have used this commandment to tell you there are certain phrases you can or cannot say. Now, there's great merit to that. Do not get me wrong. There is great merit to that. But what can happen if you make this command simply about what words you say and do not say then you can miss the heart of this command. The heart of this command is to reveal, do you revere God? Genuinely, sincerely, do you revere him? Are you, do you admire him? Are you in awe of him? That's what the command is supposed to do. And while guarding yourself from saying certain phrases is helpful, you can use it to not actually deal with the heart of the matter, do I actually revere God? So there's two ways that I, I wanna address the ways we disobey and misinterpret this command. And they're not as obvious as coarse language, but they're just as prevalent. Here are the two ways. We misuse his name, we misuse his name, and we're unaffected by his name. The way you and I treat God's name in vain is we misuse it or we are unaffected by it. Let me explain. We misuse it. Something that happens very often in Christian circles, if you're not a Christian, we're glad you're here. Maybe you haven't heard this, but let let me explain it to you. What happens very often in Christian circles is the terminology is used, God told me to do X, Y, or Z. To make probably what we use, God called me to do X, Y, or Z. Right, we use that language. And typically, this language is used not to describe something God has said in the Bible. Typically, it's used to describe an area of your life where God's word has not spoken directly to. So, you've heard someone say, or you've said yourself, God told me, God called me to this job. God called me, God told me to stay in this relationship or leave that relationship. God called me, God told me to talk to this person, not to this person, to travel this place, not this place, and on and on I could go. And when someone uses the language God told me to, dot, 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 they rarely mean, so you know, they rarely mean they heard an audible voice. I, I've rarely heard, I, pe- some people have claimed that before, different conversation, but they rarely mean they heard an audible voice. Here's what typically they're describing is that they have this sense in their, their gut, so to speak, and a phrase in their mind that kind of congealed together for them to interpret as, God's speaking to me. Typically when that language is used, that's what we're describing, right? You have this sense inside of you, a phrase that came to mind that seems in line with the scriptures and you said, this is God speaking to me to do this or that. And when we use this language, honestly, the intention typically is trying to honor God. That's why we use this language, right? We're trying to honor God. We want other people to know that we want to honor God in every decision of our life. We we, want to be sure that what we're doing is actually honoring to God. But listen, very often, very often, this sort of language of God told me to dot, 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 where God hasn't spoken clearly in the Bible, very often can be a way we take up the Lord's name in vain. Very often, it can be a way that we take up the Lord's name in vain. We can carelessly invoke God's name and authority as a way to guard ourselves from disagreement, as a way to guard ourselves from instruction from other people in our lives and even the Bible. Because if you say God told you to do something, what's my response gonna be? Well, I think you should. It's hard to argue. I mean, I know when I was younger, I got broken up with by God told me to break up with you. What do you say? I heard different. Like, what do you say? Very often, it can be used to guard us from any sort of disagreement and make us feel confident. And what's fascinating is this sort of speech is not anything new. It's not anything new. One of the direct applications of this command in Israel back in the day One of the direct applications in Israel back in the day was God warning people not to use his name as a way to manipulate other people into trusting what they say. Don't turn there, it's Leviticus 19.12, the book you get halfway through and then quit. Leviticus 19.12. Not judging, I'm with you, okay? 19.12, listen, you haven't read this verse, I'll read it to you. (laughs) It's good. Um, You shall not swear by my name falsely. You shall not swear by my name falsely, and so profane the name of your God, I am the Lord. What were they doing in Israel? They had this trustworthy name that they figured out, if I use this, people tend to agree with me. If I say this, I don't get pushback. If I say this, I can conceal my motives and ensure certain outcomes. That's what they were doing. God gave a word to Moses, said, tell them to not swear falsely by my name. And like the Israelites, we can do the same thing. We can use God's name to guard our real motives, to guard our real insecurities, and to guard our real uncertainties. We don't wanna be vulnerable and say, I don't know what he wants me to do. It feels much more spiritual to say, I'm confident God has told me to X, Y, or Z. Now, am I saying that the Spirit of God will never bring His Word to bear on your mind in unique ways? Am I saying the Spirit of God will never bring whatever burden your conscience with ways that you specifically need to obey His Word in your life in every area of your life? No. You've been given, if you're in Christ, you've been given the Spirit of God for Him to lead and guide us as He helps us understand how the Scriptures apply to different areas of our lives. But the way you understand God's will is by submitting to His Word, conferring with His people, and listening to your leaders. That's how you find God's will is go to his word, confer with other believers, talk to your leaders, listen to their instruction, their feedback, those who know you well, and then what you do is you make a decision and you walk forward confidently in God's sovereignty, but open-handed knowing you don't know what circumstances he'll bring. Walking forward confidently saying, I've been sure before and God bring very different circumstances into my life. We should be, church, very, careful and very cautious to ever invoke God's name and authority in areas where he has not spoken explicitly in the scriptures. We should be careful, we should be cautious, why? Because we wanna guard his name. We wanna guard his name from being carried in the mud with our sin and our bad decisions. I love this quote from uh, Professor Gordon Conwell, Dr. Meredith Klein, he says, where God has shut his holy mouth, I should be afraid to open mine. Where God, what he's saying is, where God hasn't spoken it in the scriptures, if it's outside of what he said, I should be slow to say this is what God has to say. I should be slow. Now, you should wanna follow God's word in every, every, every area of your life, you should want his will. Don't hear me say, don't seek him out for decisions in your life, that's not what I'm saying. But what I'm saying is, let's be honest in saying, we are so prone to error still. We're so prone to error. Our knowledge is so limited. And Christian, you still have very real sin in your life, and so you can be deceived still. So we want to guard his holy name and say, any error that happens in my life was on me, not because God told me to do it. So let let me give you a real practical way that I practice this in my life. I practice this in my life by using the word seem. Seem, S-E-E-M, seem. When I believe that God himself is burdening my mind with some way I need to obey him, and I have angst in my heart about some way I need to sacrifice for his name's sake, that's not explicitly revealed in the scriptures, it's a decision I'm making in my life, I use the word, "seem." I will tell people, it seems like God wants me to dot dot dot. It seems like God wanted me to stay in this position. It seems like God wanted me to talk to this person. It seemed like God was burdening me to pray for this person. It seems. Why do I say that way? Because if for some reason there's a mistake, I want to say I misinterpreted what was going on. It's not because God is schizophrenic and then changed his mind ten minutes later. It's like, oh, you know what? We should say together. That's not what we want. We want to guard his name, because listen, his name is like no other. His words like no other. He never speaks with any error whatsoever, ever. Ever. God only speaks words that are absolute and world-governing truth. His word is never thwarted. His word is never stopped. And so if for some reason what we thought was going to work doesn't, what we thought was godly intention, we find out later it was sin. When we begin to realize I made a terrible decision, I'm off on this, we can say it wasn't because God was wrong, I was. It seemed like God had this for me and I was wrong. And the great news about our God and his love for us in Jesus Christ is that God's gonna do good to you even when you make bad decisions. That's the gospel we have. You were doing terrible and God loved you. That's the gospel. And so we don't have to think that if I don't make the perfect decision and I don't know for sure that God guarantees me success in this area, that I'm not gonna do anything We can walk forward confidently knowing my God has given me far greater blessings when I was far worse often in sin. He'll take care of me in this one. He'll take care of me. So church, let's be careful, let's be cautious. Let's not take up his name in vain when we carelessly and thoughtlessly invoke his authority and his name as a justification for our decisions we make. So that's one way we disobey this command. We misuse his name. But we also disobey this command when we're unaffected by his name. We're unaffected by his name. It's important to remember what the command says, what the command doesn't say. Look at verse seven again, Exodus 27. It says, you shall not take the name of of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. So notice what the command says. The command says we should never treat his name in vain like any other, but it doesn't say we should never use, never call out, never invoke his name. We're supposed to. God wants his people to know his name, to cry out to him, to talk about his name. He wants that. He just wants you to do so thoughtfully, carefully, and in serious consideration of the person you're speaking about. See, many of us, many of us may never use the language of God told me to do X, Y, or Z, but we've erred on the other side by acting as if his name holds no power, no significance, no importance. We err on the other side. We treat his name as vain by being totally unaffected by it. By being totally unaffected by it. Here, here's how you can diagnose if this, if this is you. If you, when you hear about God, you hear about him, and it never moves you. It never moves you. You rarely feel genuine in awe of You rarely have great joy over his love or great sorrow over your sin. You hear his name often. You hear his name often. Maybe you're in church a lot. You hear his name often, but it rarely does anything to you. Why? It's empty in its meaning to you. It doesn't mean anything. I hear it through one ear, out the other. You may never make the grave error of saying God has spoken when he hasn't, but you may make the greater error of acting as if what he's already spoken isn't life-altering. You may make the greater error of acting like what He has said, what He has been true about, has no meaning. It's empty, it's weightless, it doesn't affect us. And honestly, this scares me more for us. It really does, because for, for those of us when we're trying to follow God and we're saying God told me to do X, y or Z, at least the desire to want to follow God is there. At least we're trying. It scares me more because we can convince ourselves, and I I know this as someone who's a pastor. I know how easy it is for me and those who are in vocational ministry to do this. It's easy to convince yourself you love God's name and value God's name by looking at all that you do and be deceived. It's easy to go, "What I'm in church all the time and I serve a ton and I consider myself a spiritual person. But listen, In a room this size, if you are unmoved, unaffected, and bored every time you hear God's name and you just do it out of like some traditional religious background that you have, you should not look at your religious activity to give you any solace about the state of your heart with God. You shouldn't. You're because we treat his name as if it's empty, as if it's vain. If you only use his name in this service, the only time he's ever on your lips is in this service, you're treating his name as limited and empty, that it only has power here. As if he's just some kind of tribal deity in this gym, he doesn't exist outside of it. When we're unaffected by his name, we treat it as if it's empty and meaningless and lifeless and nothing could be further from the truth about God, nothing. And so to be unaffected and never use his name is another way to treat his name in vain. So. If we're not supposed to misuse it or be unaffected by it, what is God after in this command, right? What's he after? What's the worship he wants? What pleases him? What did he set us free to do? Here's what you need to listen to. Instead of taking his name in vain, here's what God wants you to do. God wants you to hallow his name. Instead of taking it in vain and misusing it, being unaffected by it, he wants us to hallow his name. He wants his name to have the utmost respect reverence, admiration, and significance in our lives. That we treat his name with a seriousness that we don't treat anyone else's name with. He gets a reverence that nobody else gets from us. His name is hallowed, it's holy. See, thinking about God and all that he is should affect you in ways like nothing and no one else. He should have a sway in your life, a weightiness in your life like nothing else. Uh, John Dansby is our St. John A.M. campus pastor. He used an illustration to kind of describe this that I thought was brilliant and I think it's helpful for us. A way to think about God's name having weight in your life is, is thinking about a trampoline. Thinking about a trampoline. So just the other couple of weeks ago, um, I had, we had a birthday party for my daughter, Elle, my son, Henry. Their birthdays are two days apart, so they had a joint party the rest of their lives until they're 18 in my house. Joint party. <laughs> joint party. Sorry, kids. Joint party. Um. party. And we went to a park, or a trampoline park called Jumpoline. Anyway, so we were there. Um, and what started as a party for my kids turned into a party for me because it was awesome. I mean, I'm just dunking on kids. And I'm playing dodgeball with five-year-olds. I mean, it was a great day off. You want to go off some steam? Go play dodgeball with five-year-olds. You'll feel very confident. Just, just. They were, really, they were really soft, the dodgeballs, really soft, but just pelting them. It was awesome. And so I'm jumping around having a get so sweaty. It was fantastic. But here's the thing you have you, you learn when you're jumping. The, I mean, it's been a long time since I've been on trampoline. And so I'm jumping around, and you remember, oh, if I jump what this two-year-old is, they are going to eat it like that, like they're going to be destroyed. And so I have to be really careful about where I'm jumping. I'm a big dude, and so people are getting destroyed everywhere. And so apologizing to mom, sorry about your kid, and moving on real quick. Why, because when you get on a trampoline, everything that is less weighty and less, it's uh, less, um, lighter, what does it do? It bends to what's heavier. When you get on a trampoline, everything that's lighter and less weighty, it bends and it sways towards what's heavier. This is what it looks like for God's name to be hallowed in your life. He's on the trampoline, so to speak, and his weight is infinite, so infinite, Everything bends, everything sways, everything caters towards him, because he's more weighty, more significant, more important than anything you know. That's what it's like to hallow his name, is he has a sway and he has a weight that makes even great things like children and great things like health and great things like feeling confident in your job and all the things that are good in this world, he comes on the trampoline, so to speak, and he says, I'm the most weighty thing in your life everything sways towards me, everything. Because I'm more important, I'm more weighty. And you, this, that truth that I just described, that is central throughout the Bible. You will never understand the Bible if you do not understand God communicating again and again, I'm the most important person you know. There's no one that compares, there's no one close. And Jesus shows us how important God's name is to his people. Jesus himself in his teaching, when he teaches his disciples how to pray, he shows us how important God's name is to his people. It's commonly known as the Lord's Prayer, and this has been a prayer prayed by Christians for the last 2,000 years, and at the center of it is God's name being hallowed. Look at Matthew six, verse seven. Right before the Lord's Prayer, listen to what Jesus says. He says, and when you pray, and when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your, for your father knows what you need before you ask him. Look at verse seven again. Before he gets into the Lord's Prayer, look how he sets it up. Verse seven, and when you pray, do not heap up empty or vain phrases. He said, don't come to God with empty phrases. Vain phrases as if you could say enough words and manipulate him like somebody else. You don't treat his name with vanity as if it's empty. You come with a reference. Look at verse 9, how then Jesus describes how to pray. He says, Pray then like this Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. This prayer, you're probably familiar with it, it's it's just a sort of template for prayer. It's not meant to be this um, thing you quote word for word as a monologue with no real thought, you just kind of say it out loud. It's meant to be a trustworthy sketch of how you can pray. Put those words in your own words, in your own circumstances. And so we could break the Lord's Prayer up into six requests, we could, but truthfully, truthfully, there's one main request in this prayer. There's one main request in this prayer. The prayer begins and it centers around us begging God to honor His name. Us begging God to honor His name. Look at verse nine again. Listen to the very, how Jesus is teaching His people to pray. Pray then like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Of all the different requests, of all the different requests that Jesus could tell his disciples to ask of God, he makes God's name front and center. See, the request, request is not for God's name to become more holy. God can't be more holy. He's infinite. He can't be expanded upon. No, the, the, the request is simply for us to treat him as such. He's already infinitely holy. What the, the prayer is, God, help us see you as that. Help us respond to you as that and in such a way. Jesus wants the first request. I want you to hear this. He's mapping out what prayer should look like. He wants the first request to be about us begging God to make our hearts revere him. Think about his disciples he's talking to. These, most of these guys are pretty poor. They have a lot of needs that they need God to meet for them. And Jesus still says, the first thing I want you to start with every time is begging God, God, make my heart honor you. God, cause me to see you with all the wonder that I should, because I don't. To pray for the people around you and to the nations to say, God, would you cause them to revere your character? God, would you cause them to see that there is none like you? God, would you hallow your name? Think about your life. Do you ever pray like that? Be introspective for a second. Don't just listen, be introspective. Do you ever pray like that? Do do you ever pray about your disposition and attitude towards God? Do you start with that? See, most of the time when you and I pray, we start with us, we do. We start with our requests, we start with our needs, our circumstances, our sins, our shortcomings. Listen, all of those things are great things to pray. You should pray them. Jesus gets to those things in the prayer. All those things are important, you should pray those things, but what Jesus says is start with begging God, our Father in heaven, Help you and keep you from treating His name in vain. That's the first thing Jesus says. Pray like this: God, hallowed be Your name. And recently, my own my own private um, prayer time. Just I didn't know I'd be preaching on this. But I started praying through the Lord's Prayer. Started going through it as a kind of a template for me to think through my own life and. It has been fascinating, I mean, really fascinating to me how refreshing it has been for me to start with God's name and not mine. It's been so refreshing because when you start your prayer time in prayer with God's name being honored, what you're doing is you're reorienting your mind to say, oh, he's at the center, not me. What you're reminding yourself is saying, okay, on the trampoline of life, he's the weighty one, not me. Everything sways towards him, not me. And it has been incredibly refreshing because when I'm at the center of my life, I fall apart. Like when I'm responsible to meet all of my own longings, when I'm looking to me as the one who has to keep all the plates spinning in my life and I'm the one who has to perform to make sure I have an identity and a hope and a future, I crumble. Even when I'm still performing well, I'm not happy, I'm anxious, I'm stressed. And so when I'm at the center, I am miserable. I can't carry the weight. I can't meet all my longings. That's why Jesus is starting saying, start with remembering who this is all about. Put him in the center because, you know who can meet all your longings for acceptance and approval from people? God. Do you know who has a future for you that, that is more sure than any bank account you could ever have? God. It's easy for him. He's like no other. The best prayer you could pray for your long-term joy and delight and identity and future and hope is this prayer. God is setting you up for the best, the most amount of happiness you could have when he's at the center. He wants you to build your life on him, not on you. He's the one that should be talked about, not us. So Jesus says, start by praying, God, please give me a heart and is in awe and wonders at your name. Give me that heart. And Jesus starts here because the rest of the prayer, the rest of the prayer is us asking God to do things that highlight how holy he is. That's the rest of the prayer. All the other requests, all the other requests of God we're asking him to do things that showcase how sacred and unique he is. So when we pray things like, God, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, we're saying, God, bring your kingdom, your reign, your rule, your ethics. Why? Because there's no one as wise and as just and as true as you as king. That request is saying, God, honor your name. When we ask God for daily provision, we're saying, there's no one else who looks out for my needs and no one else who owns everything. God, provide for me. When we ask God for freedom from sin and forgiveness of sin, we're saying his grace, his mercy is the only one that can forgive me. Why? Because his love is like no other. The rest of the prayer is us saying, God, honor your name, honor your name, honor your name. Provide for me, honor your name. Forgive me, honor your name. Let your name be made great, God. And also we find ourselves being refreshed and happy because he's at the center of our lives, not us. Not us. Exodus 27. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. For the Lord, listen, the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Like last week, there's a warning with this command. Listen, God's saying, I will not overlook you treating my name as common. I won't do it. I will not. I will not act as if my name can be trampled over like any other name. This is exactly why, because we what? We misuse his name, we're unaffected by his name. That's why we need Jesus. Jesus came, Jesus came so you and I could honor God's name with all the worship he so rightly deserves. I wanna end with this, I want you to, we're gonna look at the last thing Jesus prayed, the last thing recorded he prayed before his betrayal before his crucifixion. John 17, 26, don't turn there. Just listen to the last thing Jesus prayed before he was killed. I made known to them your name. I made known to them your name. And I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Jesus is getting ready to die for the innumerable ways you and I have treated God's name in vain. And the last thing he says is about his resolve to make the Father's name known to us. It's the last thing he prays. And the very next thing Jesus does after this prayer is he walks straight into his humiliation and his death for our sin. He wanted the guilty, he wanted the guilty to know the name of God. He wanted the guilty to know his father's name, so he suffered on our behalf. And his prayer was clear. What did he say? He wanted you to hear the name of God, and the things that come flooding into your mind is all about his love. He wanted you to hear the name of God, and all of a sudden you begin to think of his attributes of kindness and mercy to you. He did all that he did so that when we talked about God, what would rise first to our brains was not just our shame and our guilt and our sin, but we think about the, the memories of his faithfulness in our lives. And we'd hear his name and it would come flooding into our souls would be the fact that he's been faithful, he's been faithful, he's been faithful. I failed a thousand times and he hasn't left me. That when we heard his name, what would come flooding into our minds are stories of his Love that his name among his people would be synonymous with his mercy and his grace and his kindness. Jesus wanted us to have a proper perspective of his name, and so may God answer the prayer of our King Jesus. May God make us a people who genuinely beg God and aspire to revere his name and treat his name with all the respect all the admiration and all the wonder he so rightly deserves. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, God, you are our Father. You're our Daddy, you're the one who loves us, you're the one who's looking out for us, you're our Father. And the reason you are is because this Jesus gave everything for us to know your name. Father, hallowed be your name. God, hallowed be your name. Would you make your name, your character, your words be the most precious thing to us? God, we, when we think about that aspiration, we think about this command to not treat your name in vain but to hallow it, God, it shows us all just how far we run from you, just how often we're bored, just how often we're apathetic, just how often we misuse your name. And so, God, we want your name to be hallowed because you're the one who sent your son to say, I know you did all that. I'm going to pay for it. My son's going to give his life so you could know my name. And so that when you hear of it, all you think of is he loves me. He's for me. I can trust him. God, save us from being a people who think life is primarily about us. God, it's not. It's about you. And that is the happiest thing for us, that you would be at the center, that you would be sung about, that you would be talked about, that you would be remembered. Oh God, when you're at the center, our hearts swell with joy. Because everything we're after, it's you. So God, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. God, give us this day our daily bread. And Forgive us of our trespasses. Forgive us of our debts, as we have also forgiven those who are indebted to us. God, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. God, hallowed be your name. Pray these things in the mighty name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Church, let's stand together.